Welcome back. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia. It's happening. It's all Encounter with God time here. We're about to get into our Bible study. Okay, so going to a couple of text messages. In fact, if, before I go to text messages, I just do need to, and, and I get this often, we have very hilly topography here in the Newcastle area. Mm-hmm. You kind of drive up and down and up and down all over the place, which is kind of bad topography for radio. Oh, And so some people are like, oh, yeah, I struggle getting a good signal and it cuts in and out. There is an easy solution. Why are you using your radio? Radio is old <laughs> technology. Use your phone. Listen on your phone and you will always have a good signal and you will have a good signal that you can carry with you all across Australia. So simply download the Faith FM Australia app and press play. Problem solved. Run it through your car stereo and you will be in good shape. You will never have to struggle with a bad signal ever again, which, of course, is good news. Uh, Going to our text messages, let's see what's come in. Uh, Jesus warned us that in the last days, I think this one's in relationship to the interview we just had. Jesus warned us that in the last days not to be deceived. It seems... He knew about fake news in our time. That's actually a very good observation right there. If you go to Matthew chapter 24, which is the uh, passage of the New Testament where Jesus talks about all about his return and the end of time. It's a very, very famous sermon here. Second longest sermon ever recorded by Jesus. What's the first? The... Sermon on the Mount. Yes. Sermon on the Mount is the longest recorded one. This is the second longest recorded one. It's all about the second coming. Okay. Uh, first thing that Jesus says, so this is his opening statement. How would you like to have this as an opening statement for a sermon, Renee? Mm-hmm. Uh, verse 4. Verse 4, Matthew 24, verse 4. Jesus told them, don't let anyone mislead you. Okay, there's your, there's your opening statement. You stand up the front, you're going to preach a sermon, and it says, and you stand up and say, do not be deceived. I would be like, what? Who lied to me? Why am I deceived? How how am I deceived? If you were in the audience, you would, wouldn't you? Yeah. And if you were preaching, I think that you would. Maybe you should try this sometime next time you preach. Oh, just stand up the front yeah. and 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 just state that line. Do not be deceived and pause. I think at that point you're going to have everybody's attention. <laughs> yes. Okay. So the first thing that Jesus says is, "Don't be deceived." Let's look at what he. The second thing he says, uh, verse five. For many will come in my name, claiming I am the Messiah. They will deceive many. Okay, so the first thing that Jesus says is don't be deceived. The second thing that Jesus says is don't be deceived. Try verse 11. Verse 11. And many false prophets will appear and will deceive many people. And now try verse 24. For false messiahs and false prophets will rise up and perform great signs and wonders as to deceive, if possible, even God's chosen ones. So Jesus has a bit of a theme in this sermon going, doesn't he? Yeah, don't he's be deceived. Re- uh, he's, been, he's been repeating it four times. And I think this is actually a very, very valid observation here that we live in a world of fake news. Uh, we get so much of our news via social media and even mainstream media, you kind of really don't know what to believe and what not to believe Yeah. because, well, mainstream media has got it wrong so many times It's just and social media is... Exactly. Yeah. And people speak with such authority these days that everything they say is true, but often it's just opinion, it's speculation, and just with so much news coming out, you don't know. It's too. It takes ages to figure out which one is actually true. 
Absolutely, and this is why you have, need to have investigations at certain times to actually find out what is true, you know, because there's all of these accusations going around, you know, in the States right now about election rigging. The reality is I've got the faintest idea whether it was rigged or not. Yeah. <laughs> I have no idea. Yeah. But I do want to find out. I think the American people deserve to find out. So, yeah, have an investigation. Mm. Find out whether something went wrong or not. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Donald Trump sort of spouts his mouth off all the time and you, uh, anyway... Um, yeah, don't let me don't, don't even go down that path. Mm-hmm. Okay, uh, another text message right here. It is. It's interesting that most of the politicians are Jesuit trained and have advisors that are Jesuits. Must be a coincidence. I think that might be a little bit tongue in cheek, right there. <laughs> this is an interesting um, text message. I don't know whether this is currently the case. I know that uh, if you go back to when Tony Abbott was Prime Minister of Australia. The majority of the front bench would have uh, fit into this category. Uh, I don't know whether this is the case in the United States or not, but you can't help but see a certain bias happening there at the moment. And, you know, it's, it's happening not just in the United States but in the Vatican as well. And, of course, you know, a lot of people out there will like, you know, what's the problem with that? Jesuits are just educators. We would expect that to be the case in our world. And, um, and you know, they're good people. They've got lots of good history and so forth. Um, there are a bunch of Jesuits have done tremendously good things in our world. There's no question about that. But if you look into the organisation, there, there's some aspects of that organisation in their history that is absolute, that will chill you to your bone. And if you look at the oath that they take, and they still take it to this day, it's medieval, it is dark, it is murderous. And it's like, wow, how can something that like that survive into the modern era? And so that, you know, is disturbing. I, f- I find that disturbing, particularly in relationship to religious liberty. Okay, yeah, I just read that oath and it's, yeah, it's medieval. A, oh, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> Abs- I mean, it's been slightly updated. You know, there's, there's, some, there's, some, there's some things in there that you would not read on radio, put it that way. Yeah. Uh, and this is a fourth degree oath. It's only taken directly to the Pope and it's taken by every Jesuit. Mm. Uh, a friend of mine was in uh, the Church of Jesus in Rome uh, some years ago, and was had uh, morning tea with a bunch of Jesuit priests and asked them a whole bunch of questions, asked them about this oath. And yeah, they're a little bit embarrassed about it, a little bit sheepish about it, but they're like, yeah, yeah, that's what we still do. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Just a little bit, a little bit scary. And okay, so the statement here. Um, if we look back in American politics, I guess the last president that we had who was Jesuit trained was Bill Clinton. Um, from Georgetown University, and um, yeah, education is incredibly powerful. If you change, if you change the education system in one generation, you change the entire nation. Hmm. Yeah, it is the most powerful force in the world that there is, and this is really going to come out in our Bible study today. So let's go to Mark chapter seven. And we've got a passage to read here, verse 1 to 13. It's going to need a little bit of explanation because there's some strange things in here that we in our modern era go, wait, what? 
what, what, what's going on there? So Mark chapter 7 says, One day some Pharisees and teachers of religious law arrived from Jerusalem to see Jesus. They noticed that some of his disciples failed to follow the Jewish ritual and of hand washing before eating. Uh-oh, uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> Let's stop there for a moment. We live in the COVID era, and in the COVID era, do you ever eat without washing your hands? No, you must sanitize, wash your hands. Sanitize, sanitize, sanitize. You sanitize when you get out of the car. You sanitize when you get in the car. You sanitize when you're about to eat. You sanitize when you walk into a building. You sanitize when you walk out of a building. You sanitize when you go shopping. You sanitize when you leave shopping. You sanitize. There's, there's a it's bottle law. of sanitizer. It's almost just law. <laughs> everywhere, and people look at you sideways if you don't, mm-hmm. and it's kind of like, I wonder whether we're going to have any skin left on our hands by the time COVID is over. And here you've got Jesus and his disciples are not washing his hands. Does this mean that Jesus' disciples were kind of just, you know, dirty grots? I mean, maybe. Is this Jesus encouraging a lack of hygiene? <laughs> no. No, it's not. We need to look into somewhat in, into detail yeah. as to what this was all about. This was not a hygienic washing of hands that mm-hmm. they're talking about. This was a ceremonial washing of hands, and Jesus' disciples weren't participating in that particular ceremony, which was a tradition of the elders. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. Okay, so let's keep reading from there, and let's see what else comes up. The Jews, especially the Pharisees, do not eat until they have poured water over their cupped hands, as required by their ancient traditions. Similarly, ooh, I can't say that word, um, they don't eat anything from the market until they, they immerse their hands in water. This is but one of many traditions that they have clung to, such as their ceremonial washing of cups, pitchers, and kettles. Okay, let's stop there for a moment. When we read this, we're like, well, okay, this was actually a great ceremony because it encourages hygiene. Yeah. Except that it kind of didn't. So it worked a little bit like this. The ceremonial washing of hands was that you would take the water from half an eggshell and pour it onto the wrist of your left hand. You would let that water run down over the palm of your hand and out through the fingers onto the wrist of the right hand and then across the palm of the right hand and out between the fingers, and then you were classed as being ceremonially clean enough to eat. You had any dirt or any any uncleanness or any Gentile or anything like that had now been washed off your hands that you may have come in contact with. This was not about washing dirt or grime or filth away. This was a ceremony. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, if you were in an area where there was no water available for that particular ceremony to happen, you would do the same thing, you just do the air version. Mm-hmm. So without the water, you just you still go through the same motions. And, of course, they had a loophole in their tradition, which meant that if there was no water available, so long as you acted out, then that would be okay. Now, Jesus' disciples didn't participate in this. And you will find, you know, it talks about, you know, the cupped hands and so forth. It's describing that particular ceremony. Why do you think Jesus' disciples did not participate in the ceremonial washing of hands? It's not talking about the hygienic washing of hands, but why didn't they participate in the ceremonial washing of hands? I'm not sure. Maybe it was only practiced by the 
teachers of the laws, maybe? By the Pharisees in particular. Yeah, they were very, I mean, very devout, they sound, so. They were very devout. And the primary reason is that this was one of their traditions. Jesus was somebody who followed the Bible. This has got nothing to do with the Bible. You don't find it anywhere in the Bible. The Pharisees had invented, you know, law after law after law after law after law after law. And one of their laws was like, okay, how do we, you know, we, we don't want to have any association with the nations around us because in the past, in our past history, there's some bad history there where we've associated with surrounding nations. And because of that, we've gone into idolatry. So let's keep ourselves exclusive from them to the point that they would not touch someone from another nation. They would not enter the home of someone with another nation. They were afraid that somebody from another nation would get Gentile on their fingers, mm. on their hands, and would have to be washed off. And so they went from one extreme to the other. The one extreme was, of course, where they'd gone in the past, where they became you know, best friends with all of the surrounding nations, they began to intermarry with them, and of course they then began to worship those pagan gods. They ended up in Babylonian captivity as a result of that. When they came back out of Babylonian captivity, they're like, okay, how, how can we ensure that this never happens again? Yeah. And so they read the Bible and they're like, okay, let's see how long of a list of rules we can make so that we can ensure that people always follow what the Bible says. It's interesting, like you said, that they came out of captivity and I think from that fear they now read the Bible, I guess with a bit of a bit of a perspective of we don't want to go back into captivity. What can we do? <laughs> the motivation was good. Yeah. But where they went with it was wrong. Mm. Now, one of the things I love about traveling through Israel is when you go to the uh, the hotel, in the, the meals in the evening, mm. they have the best vegan desserts and ice cream ever. Oh, I yes. Why? It's all vegan because for the main meal, they serve meat. Yes. Right? Yeah. Uh, it, of course, it's kosher meat. You know, it's biblical clean meat. And there is a verse in the Bible that says you shall not boil or cook a kid in its mother's milk. Now, a kid being a baby goat in its mother's milk. Fair enough. But then, just on the off chance that somebody at the table might have some meat left on their table and somebody else brings some dessert that has traces of milk in it somewhere ice cream or something like that, and on the off chance that those two might come in contact with each other, if they come in contact with each other, it's classed as, well, that meat was cooked in that milk, therefore it's now contaminated and you can't eat it. And so they just, all the desserts are vegan. Wow. Which for somebody who's a vegetarian like myself, that's awesome. like fantastic. Yeah. This is amazing. Yeah. You know, if you want to learn how to do good vegan desserts, go to Israel. But it's taking something that the Bible said and taking it to a level that the Bible never intended. And so this is where you've got all of these rules upon rules upon rules upon rules upon rules upon rules. Uh, I made the mistake in getting in the hotel, in getting in the Jewish lift on one Sabbath day, and it stopped at every single floor because you're not allowed to touch buttons on the Sabbath day. The Bible doesn't say that. These are rules that have been added by other people. And Jesus rejected the extra rules. He upheld what the Bible said 
Absolutely. He never defied what the Bible said, but all the extra stuff is like, no, those are traditions. There is a difference. There is nothing wrong with traditions. It's great to have traditions. Traditions can be fantastic, but traditions are not a requirement. Yeah. They're just a tradition. Mm -hmm. You have traditions in your family? Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I can't I can't pick them out because I'm like, oh, that's normal until I, you know, go to a friend's house and I'm like, don't you do this, this or that? And they're like, no. And I'm like, oh, must be a family tradition we do. Yeah. <laughs> family traditions are cool. Yeah. They are very good mm-hmm. um, and they're fantastic. As long as we, as you say, you go to somebody else's house and they don't do it and as so long as you're not like, okay, you guys are doing it all wrong exactly. here and you're going to be lost and you're going to go to hellfire because – uh, you don't follow this particular tradition. Mm-hmm. That's when it becomes a problem. Yeah. Yeah. All right, where do we get up to in our passage? Okay, so we're up to verse 5. Yes. So the Pharisees and teachers of religious law asked him, why don't your disciples follow our age-old tradition? They eat first without performing the hand-washing ceremony. Jesus replied, you hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you, for he wrote, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their worship is a farce, for they teach man-made ideas as commands from God. For you ignore God's law and substitute your own tradition. Then he said, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. For instance, Moses gave you this law from God. Honor your father and your mother and anyone who speaks disrespectfully of father or mother must be put to death. But you say it is all right for people to say to their parents, sorry, I can't help you for I have vowed to give to God what I, w- what I would have given to you. In this way, you let them disregard their needy parents. And so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And this is only one example among many others. Absolutely. And so Jesus here, Jesus is not doing away with what the Bible says. Jesus is simply doing away with tradition. Mm. He talks about the... Uh, the commandment, honour your father and mother, and upholds that commandment as being a really, really good tradition. But then what had happened, not a really good tradition, a really good commandment, but what had happened was that the Pharisees and the law, the lawyers had created a loophole for that commandment. Part of that commandment, which is honour your father and mother, is a commandment to take care of your parents in their old age. That's what it requires. And of course, in a society where there was no such thing as aged care, the only aged care that existed was what came from the family. Now, if your parents were elderly and in need of aged care, that's going to soak up a fair chunk of your resources. And there were some people who were incredibly selfish about that. And it's like, well, we don't want to share our resources. We want to keep all of our resources for ourselves. And so what they did was they invented a law, they invented a tradition which said that if you pronounced the word korban over any of your possessions, that meant that that possession was now dedicated to the temple and you couldn't share it. It's like, well, I'd love to share my things with you, but I kind of can't because, well, they don't belong to me anymore, they belong to the temple. You just get to use them for free. You're listening to The Breakfast Joe Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. So we've got a uh, text message coming through here. Let's have a look at that. Uh, love the show, guys. Awesome and informative Bible studies. So, ah, that's in- oh, thanks. That's always nice to get <laughs> encouragement. Yeah, we always really appreciate 
um, some encouragement. So it was just nice. Yeah, thank you. That made my walk. Praise God. Mm. Praise God. And, of course, Renee's been doing a great job here on uh, The Breakfast Show, so we appreciate everything that she's been sharing with us. Okay, we were talking about the law of Corban. We were talking about how that if you pronounce the word Corban over any of your possessions, that possession then became dedicated to the temple. It didn't belong to you anymore. That's such a loophole. <laughs> okay, but here's the, here's the thing. Here's the thing. Let's say that uh, your little mustard-coloured uh, um, Fiat outside, mm-hmm. uh, let's say that... Your parents are getting elderly. Yep. It's your responsibility to look after your parents within the um, the economy of the time. Mm-hmm. You know, back in the time of Jesus, the, the Bible commands you to look after them. And let's say they needed that car, mm-hmm. and you had you know opportunity to buy yourself another little uh, run around, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, but you really didn't want to. Mm. So you could pronounce Corban over your little mustard-coloured Fiat, mm-hmm. and uh, that meant that that little Fiat now belonged to the temple. However, however, the loophole goes further because you would not have to drive it down to the temple and leave it there with the priests. You get to keep it and use it. So, so how does it belong to the temple? It, does, it doesn't. In well, no- just because you pronounce Corban over it. <laughs> I, I- <laughs> See, this was a loophole that was created to get around the law of God. And we kind of laugh at it, looking back at it. But what we need to do is we need to stop and ask ourselves the question, what loopholes do we create in our minds to get around the law of God? Good question. <laughs> you know, what are there, you know, what justifications do we come up with in our own head for, you know, telling that little white lie? Mm. Uh, and that's probably, well, what justifications do we, do we create in our own mind? It's like, yeah, well, I'm just coveting here, but that's not such a bad thing. Mm. The Bible says thou shalt not lie. The Bible says thou shalt not covet. Another thing um, very common is like, oh, I don't need to speak up or I don't need to say anything. Like I can just – I think the lack of, of action is also something that we're like, it's not my place to – And you know what? <laughs> it might be. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, and, and so often that happens that, you know, we just stay silent when we should be speaking up. Yeah. Okay, what verse, what verse did we get up to? Um, we got up to verse 13. Oh, we read the whole thing. Yeah. Okay, so yep. in this passage, of course, Jesus quotes from the book of Isaiah, and he says, Well did Isaiah speak of you, saying, This people draw near to me with their lips, and with their mouth they honor me, but they teach for me the commandments. They teach... Um, man-made ideas. Man-made ideas. As, as if they're commands from God. That's right. Now, man-made ideas being taught, and, and we got to look at this now in the context of education. Do we have an educational system today where man-made ideas are being taught? Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. So one of the notes here says, you know, many of the great intellectual ideas in the world today are based on a naturalistic view of reality. In other words, a view of reality that rules out the existence of God. Uh Many disciplines studied in school today are studied from that perspective, which often means that what is taught will be contradictory to Scripture. And you particularly find this in the area, uh, well, historically we found this in the area of origins, and now we find it in the area of uh, gender ideology and relationships, where what is commonly taught in schools is very, very different from what the Bible says. And I was looking at you know some examples of this 
um, just sort of doing a bit of research for this Bible study and looking at, well, this research comes out of the United States. And so typically what you've got, and begin, it begins with the French Revolution. Between, If you look at you know, between the, the, the left and the right, the left has lent much more towards the secular mind. Uh, that begins with the French Revolution, and of course this is not to say that there are not many, many tremendous God-fearing, you know, godly um, Christians and Christian leaders on the left. Of course there are. But historically we all know that it has le- lent towards a less God focus and a more naturalistic focus. And so in the United States, and I was just looking at some, some research on this, uh, as the universities stand at the moment, out for every 127.5 university lecturers who are on the left, there are only 10 who are on the right. That's a massive gap. Now, what's interesting about that is how that then divvies up as far as various disciplines go. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of people who are observing this are worried about it because it's, it's limiting the gene pool of thought. And so the gene pool of thought is not diverse enough to actually create good thought anymore because, you know, all debate has been removed. It's bias. Uh, but when it comes to communications and anthropology in those two fields, in the United States there are zero people, zero uh, university lecturers who are on the right. It's only coming from the left. Uh, in the area of religion, the left outnumbers the right as far as university lecturers go, at a ratio of 70 to 1. Now, that is surprising. Um, but what that does show is the trajectory of education and the tra- trajectory of, um, of, of where, of what, People, what young people are being educated in, as far as you know, communications, anthropology, and religion goes. It's the trajectory is only one direction, and that's a little bit concerning, particularly when we look at most educators who are on the right will still stand by a naturalistic view of reality. In other words, a non-God view, a view that takes God out of the equation. And once you take God out of the equation, then you don't have a system of true education because the foundation of true education is redemption. That is that is the foundation of, you know, that is the purpose of all true education is redemption. And so, yeah, it's it, it definitely creates an interesting mix in our world. Um Oh, we just got a text message coming through here oh, about the end. The end has ended. Yeah. It's kind of sad. sad. Last night was the last presentation of America and the end. How sad. Hope you guys will continue with another presentation about the last generation. I will surely make sure to keep watching America and the end um, on YouTube for my studies. I learned so much from them. Thanks so much. May the Lord bless you. It's great to have some supporters for uh, the end. Mm-hmm. Um, should say that coming up immediately after this show, we have the last 
end, we have the end of the end. <laughs> America in the end, the last presentation will follow immediately after the show. Of course, it was simulcast um, last night. And for those of you who are wondering what might happen with the end.digital, we do need to let you know that we are in discussions about a possible future uh, presentation of the end dealing with some of the big questions that came through during our live question and answer time that we have not had the opportunity to answer and to give the to give the true depth that they deserve mm. and so who knows what might happen in the future we might have another one of the end coming up you're listening to the breakfast show podcast on faith fm positively different it is now time for Question of the day. Okay, so this is part two from yesterday's question where we were talking about IVF um, and, you know, ethical, uh, the ethics behind yes, it. So yes, we were. Yeah, part two on part that Part two, question. so we didn't really get to talk about designer babies. That's right. So designer babies kind of work like this, various levels of designer babies, and this is um, really new technology in many ways. And so the first thing that you can screen for once embryos have been created are things like uh, sex and disease. So you can uh, choose whether an embryo lives or dies based on whether it is male or female and whether you want to have a son or a daughter. There's something a little bit dark about, you know, choosing one to live and one to die just based on that particular information. Of course, modern science would say that, no, we're not choosing one to live and one to die because it's just a collection of cells. It's not actually a person yet. Um, that's not what the Bible teaches, of course. The Bible teaches that we can be filled with the Holy Spirit from the, from the womb and that life has begun at the point of conception. The, uh, but you can, you can understand that, you know, if they look at an embryo and say, no, this embryo is, is, you know, is, is, is diseased and it has no, no chance of, uh, of achieving life, then, you know, you can certainly see why people would go down this particular path. Yeah. Then it goes further than that because we now have the technology available and not being practiced, but the technology is available. And when technology is available, you know that it's only a matter of time until people actually start to do it. If they don't do it here in Australia, they'll do it somewhere else. Yeah. Uh, to be able to choose an embryo based on whether it has, say, for instance, musical ability or athletic ability or a predisposition to kindness or something else like that. And a lot of people would say, well, that's just good parenting because we want to teach our children no. to be... Okay, that might be good parenting, but what you're doing is you are choosing some people to live and some people to die based yeah. on what their abilities may or may not be. Mm-hmm. Because even though they might, they might have... Maybe you clone, for instance, Michael Jordan, who was a famous basketballer and has great athletic ability... Uh, that does not mean that the child who comes along as an individual, even if they're a clone, doesn't decide to be an accountant instead, mm-hmm. because they are their own individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, it's it's as simple as that. And so there is there is something that's kind of dark about choosing, you know, one embryo to live and another to die just based on abilities that you as a parent might like to see in your child. Yeah. There's something inherently selfless about becoming a parent and selfish about designer babies. It really um, it really takes away from the whole concept of acceptance. <laughs> and it and takes away from, you know, you, you're starting to play God. 
Yeah. Because like, well, these ones here are going to die and those ones are going to live. That's, that's God's prerogative. God, God is the one who gets exactly. to, to decide who lives and who dies. And there's some decisions that we're not that we're not supposed to or some you know make and just that's not something we should do yeah that's we don't right. have the capability to make right judgment on that yeah so there's a very difficult uh message that we did get from somebody yeah um and uh, uh are you able to read that one yeah. for us there so, so this, this is one, very challenging yeah yeah this one comes from margie and she asks her son and daughter have been trying for a child they have had eight miscarriages they go to brisbane for ivf treatment and they have eight embryos in stock and the son asks what happens if we don't use all the embryos if they don't use them and discard them is that the same as abortion okay i really feel for the pain that this family has gone through um and this is where these kinds of questions can become incredibly emotional and our reaction as human beings is always to react to an emotional question with as much emotional sympathy as we possibly can. That's just where we automatically go. But we do need to say this from a biblical perspective. Life begins at conception and that child is a child of God. It's that simple. And while I feel and respect, you know, feel for the for the pain that this family is going through, from a Christian perspective, we need to value life incredibly highly. This is not just a collection of cells. This is a child designed of God and somebody who is... Uh, a, a possible candidate for the kingdom of God that you know God would love to spend eternity with, mm. and so um, I would just ask this couple to pray long and hard about what they do in this particular circumstance, yeah. and God will give them direction. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at one eight hundred Faith FM.